Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Adriel's Curious City, where I get to speak with the brilliant entrepreneurs, the artists, and educators about their philosophies, strategies, and visions for their industry. This time around, I sat down with Stacy Ferreira in my first recorded podcast of Living in San Francisco. Stacy is a force of will. At 18, she founded her first tech startup with her brother. Sir Richard Branson invested, pivots were made, and the company was sold by the time she turned 20. Then, as one does, she went on to write and publish a book, Two Billion Under 20, and start her next company, Forge. Stacy and I talk a lot about a topic of interest of mine, ambition. I've been trying to understand what drives young people to work so hard and give up so much of their free time, their social lives, and their leisure for pursuits greater than themselves. And that's where we started, but we transitioned pretty quickly into finding great mentors, managing people older than yourself, and Stacy's thoughts about the future of work. So please enjoy my conversation with Stacy Ferreira. Stacy Ferreira, welcome to Adriel's Carrier City. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, this is going to be really cool for a couple of reasons. So you're, I think, the youngest person uh, to be on the podcast. Uh, Sweet. 25 years old. Yep. Right? Uh, except for the very first interview I ever did, uh, we were both 21 or 22, and it was my best friend, and we drank a lot of champagne. Uh, since then. <laughs> also a good way to do it. <laughs> it was great. If I had champagne here, we'd be, we'd be going after it. Next time. Next time, yeah. For, for season two, volume two. Perfect. Um, so I want to start off in light of that uh, with a question, or the topic I've been thinking and writing about for a while. Do you consider yourself an ambitious person? An ambitious person? Um, man, that's a tough question. I yeah, think a lot of people would say that I'm very ambitious. That being said, I feel like I'm just kind of doing me. You know, like I've kind of just got these ideas and these things that I want to do, and I go out there and I do it. And if some people call that ambition, great. I call that just me. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> what are your a, thoughts on it? Well, I, I, don't, I don't have my exact answer. I'm trying to figure it out, but like... What I'm kind of writing and thinking and asking people about is why in the world would somebody like you do all the things, like drop out of college and start companies and deal with all that stuff, like the same kind of stuff that I did and, and many other people did, but it seems so, it is so stressful and there's all this stuff that you could be doing instead, but you chose to do this stuff. Yeah. What, what, what drives you to do this stuff? I think the big thing for me is just like I have these ideas and it's probably like a lot of other people where you have these ideas and these things that you're just constantly thinking about in the back of your mind and you're like this needs to happen like someone needs to do this something needs to happen here and you start looking around and you're like okay no one else is doing this or no one else is doing it the way that I would do it and then you just kind of fall into okay I guess I'm going to be the person to go out and do this and then you just kind of you know, pull up the bootstraps and, and go for it. Were you ever, and, and we'll talk about a lot of this, but you've written a book, started and sold a company, started another one, we're on a nonprofit board at like 11 or something like that. Yep. So we'll get into the details there. But were you, do you ever, when do you remember having a sense of discomfort 
or fear in that beginning process or was it just there's this thing I found that's pretty cool and I'm gonna go do that thing for a while now yeah you know fear is an interesting thing I feel like I've been really really lucky because for me I grew up in a household where the default state was and still is to this day like there's always gonna be a couch for me to crash on so fear for me is I feel lucky to say that like the biggest if I were to completely mess up everything I know that I have a couch, I know that I have a roof over my head, and I know that my parents will like make me a hamburger helper. So, like it's not that bad, and everything that I do outside of that is cherry on top, right? Um, And that's kind of the way that I think about entrepreneurship and my job even today, which is, hey, I could go get a job, and I know that, that's fine. but every day that I'm doing something that is my own creation or my own belief or whatever you want to call it, like the thing that I am out there doing in that the world That you put into today, the world, yeah. Exactly. Like that's all cherry on top to me. Like the world's not going to end if it doesn't happen. Um, I know that life goes on. I've been through enough stuff in life to know that life goes on. But at the same time, like there's no reason to fear the failure because I, there's only upside. Right? And the upside is I create hopefully something that does a net positive in the world. I create something that helps a lot of people. Um, I create jobs in the process for other folks that are working at the company. And I have a lot of fun building something that you know, I, I think needs to exist in the world. And that's a pretty lucky position to be in. But, um, but at the same time, I think that that's kind of the way that I think about fear, which is there's not that much to fear because the default is I just sleep on my parents' couch and go get a job and figure it out. And I imagine that after a certain amount of uh, successful ventures or trials, and this could be in any field, in this case entrepreneurship, like after you like do- hit a couple doubles, then your floor rises even higher. Because like, let's say whatever you're working on right now just absolutely burns up terribly. And you've still got a pretty good track record of stuff, and then it all becomes okay. Does that make it easier as you move forward? You know, I, I think that's a good point, because it does, it does sort of make it harder to get over the mental barrier, and that's even something that I've had to fight a lot. Um, like you said, I, I started and sold a company, I then published a book, um, I'm now starting my, my next company, and the thought that I have a lot is, well, what if I fail? Because at 25 years old, having already built and sold a company and then published a book, I think people have this natural inclination that, oh, whatever you do next is going to be a success. It better be a success. Right, because that's the track record that I've had. That being said, like, hopefully the world works that way, right? Like, knock on wood, I'm working every day to, to hopefully make the thing a success. But the thing that I think I have to keep in the back of my mind is if for some reason it doesn't, like, I'm 25, I've got hopefully 80 more years of my career Maybe, hopefully, life expectancy gets better. Yeah, it's getting better. Longer. We get better every day. Yeah. There's folks working on it. So, um, hopefully, I've still got like 80 years of a career left and can do more stuff. And yeah, the bar gets higher, right? Like, I think about it all the time. My standard of living when I was 18 years old, starting my first company to where it is today, very, very different, right? In one of those scenarios, I was literally sharing Panda Express to Entree Meal with my brother splitting it half and half. And today, I'm, you know, luckily in a position where I can go out and grab drinks with friends on the weekend and not care about the cost and live in a nice apartment in San Francisco and not really care about the cost. Um, but again, if, if 
quote unquote, my world comes crashing down and the business is no longer around and I no longer am paying my own salary. Um, again, the worst that can happen is, okay, I've got to get over my ego and I sleep on my parents' couch for a little bit. And I've been a fiduciary to myself over the course of, of the past couple of years, saving money so that that doesn't have to happen. But even if all my money were to go up in flames, like the worst is still not that bad. Yeah, I think that's maybe the, like the worst part of that to focus on, but the fact that you've been a fiduciary for a long time, like there's a whole quote of like entrepreneurs are risk takers and always on the edge and like doing this crazy stuff. But in my experience, and I don't know if this is very different from yours, I never felt like any of the things I've started or done were huge risks. I always created a cushion for myself or always had a backup or always had like a, a second option. And by funding yourself for future mess ups, uh, you're kind of making it a bit easier for yourself to be able to, you're not jumping off a cliff, you set up the trampoline already, like you'll be all right, right. one way or another. Right, and I think that's a really important thing too, which is, you're spot on. A lot of times when people talk about entrepreneurship, they're like, oh, you took such a big leap, what a big risk. Um, and the reality is, most people that I talk to, it's not that much of a risk, right? Even, um, you know, you might quit your job to start a company, but you're not quitting it knowing that you have zero days of runway to pay rent, right? You're quitting it with six months of cash in the bank, or you're quitting it knowing that you've already raised your seed round of capital to start the business. Or you're quitting it with already three customers paying you something and exactly. some sort of traction. And so you gotta, you gotta mitigate. And it's all about like thinking about your ROI over a much longer term. Yep. So I remember when uh, right after college, I was starting a company and my, my best friend was starting a band and we were talking all the time about it, like everyone's getting jobs and everyone's getting jobs and we're not sure if we should be jealous or proud of ourselves or what to think. And we were like, you know what? In the long run, like we'll stand out over, you know, we'll be 23 and have failed our band or, or company or whatever instead of being 23 and have done okay in, in a larger organization. So your ROI in terms of risk needs to be thought on on a much longer trajectory. Yeah, totally. And I think the other thing that's important to note too is like you learn so much more from the quote-unquote failures. And that doesn't necessarily mean that overall your career is a failure or you're a failure or whatever it is. It just means that hey, you put yourself out on the line, which is more than a lot of people can say, and you tried something that you believed in, again, more than a lot of people can say, and if you learn something in that process, that's gonna make you much better when you go to your next job, start your next thing, pursue your next venture. You're gonna know so much more than anyone who just coasted by not learning those hard lessons. And at the very least, it builds some character. Yes. <laughs> like dealing with that kind of stuff at any age, but especially a young age, just it builds some sort of uh, thicker skin, some sort of confidence, some ego. Like I think I'm more of a jerk than some of my friends in some ways, not because of any successes, but just because like you believe in yourself. You believe, you begin to believe that you can really do some stuff. Totally. Yeah. So, so all that in context, all that like, you know, the floor is still high and, and you believe and you'll probably go start again. Have you ever defined what success or what failure might look like in the short range? It's probably easier than the long range, but in the short, like, do you know the, the, the markers of, man, what I'm doing right now is not working or on the other way around, wow, this is going so great. This is the success that we were hoping for three years ago when we started. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to define both success and failure because there's success and failure in the business sense, 
which a lot of times, I mean, we live in a capitalist society, comes down to, is this business making money and is it profitable, right? Um, and then you, you talk about success as the individual. And I think that is something that's much more complex because success as an individual who is running a company, um, you know, you read a lot of articles about things like work-life balance and happiness and what's the right balance between happiness and your baby, your business being a success. And that's something that I think is harder to get right. So when I talk about success on an individual level, for me, that's been something that has been an evolution and a process because I used to just attach success at an individual level to success of my company. And over the past, you know, really over the course of this next business that I'm running, that definition has, has changed, right? I've gotten a little bit older. I've learned a little bit more. I've realized that success is not just about the success of the company. The success is also, am I, you know, mentally all there? Am I capable of actually doing this? Am I leaving time to recharge my battery? If I think of myself like an iPhone, right? Am I letting the battery go all the way to zero? Or am I, you know, having it go down to 10% and then recharging it and giving it that rest time? Um, and I think it's important, you know, part of success is getting that balance correct. And so you said that you're getting better at that yeah, over time. Yeah. You think you are? I think I am. There used to be, um, not super proud to say it, but there used to be a period of time of my life where friends would ask to like go to the movies with me, and I would not be able to sit through a movie without having some sort of like low-grade anxiety that I should be working, which at you know, 21 at the time, 22, when I was going through that, um, you know, it's not really the way that you want to be doing life at that age, right? Um, and so that's something that I had, to, I had to work on, quite frankly. It was something that I had to sit down and say, I'm not going to think about work for the next two hours, or I'm going to leave my phone and not check my email for the next five hours, and like get really comfortable with the fact that the world goes on, and like you have a great team, and those people will figure it out, like you don't have to always be there. Um, and you should give them the, the responsibility and agency to do that. Um, but that was something that was really hard for me to, really hard for me to learn. I think that, if it's okay, I want to zero in on that a little bit yeah. because I think that feeling is very much tied to ambition. I think that feeling of there's something I've got to be doing, especially when it's your thing, it's you, you take an ownership over, it could be a company, it could be a job, it could be a task, it could be a, a project. But when you take an ownership over something and you're that young and you are working on that tire, or not even tirelessly because you are tired, to exhaustion over and over again, that it maybe is not the definition, but it's the, it's the foundation of ambition. Maybe it's not even the foundation, it's, a, it's the dark reflection. Do you think it's possible to do what you've done without that drive? Do you think a different 21-year-old could have done that or, or Stacy in a different way in a different version could have done that I think you've got to have the drive right like I think ambition like I'd be curious the definition between ambition and motivation but this is one of the things even when I think about people to hire right you can train a lot of things really hard to train motivation and maybe that's very similar to ambition really hard to train ambition where I feel like that's something that someone's got a fire within them they've got this burning desire to do something and I think you can inspire that in people for sure 
but I think that you've got to have, it's kind of like starting a fire, like the right ingredients have to be there to be able to start the fire, and then someone can inspire and kind of ignite that, but the person's got to have the right ingredients to be able to, to do that. And for some people, the, the fire starts because, again, someone else is inspiring them or someone else is, is helping light that fire. And I think in some cases, people light the fire themselves. And you lit the fire yourself. Um, for yourself. I, I did, sort of. I think there are people that I can attribute back into my career that these are people who have supported me throughout and kind of kept that fire going. And I think that that's something, too, that's really important, whether you call those people mentors or friends or family that you surround yourself with. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe I started the fire, but there's people around me that helped make sure the fire didn't go out. What did you do in those times, or still do in these times, where things are going poorly? Yep. And it's on your shoulders as the boss, but it's also on your shoulders because you, just like many of the people who listen to this and many of the, your friends and many of my friends, it's on our shoulders because we made it on our shoulders, because we expect the best from ourselves. Yep. So what do you do when it's not going the best and you're putting this on yourself and maybe you're getting a bit of that anxiety how do you solve the problem that's in front of you and then how do you solve the problem that's in your brain of of wearing down inner stacy yeah um so i'd say my default now is start delegating like if things aren't going super well a lot of times when i've looked back and looked at when are things not going well it's when I've been kind of controlling the narrative or controlling what happens and not relying on the people that I've that I've hired and brought into the company to do the job that they're best at. Do you remember a time where that happened? Um, specifically? Uh, lots of times. I'm trying to think of one that I can... Willing and, and able to share. Um, I'm curious because in specific context, I'll buy you some time here, yeah. but in specific context, it's so hard to do yeah. because I have that same experience of, oh, I've done it, like I've done it myself before. I'll just, I'll dig my own grave out of this. Like I'll, I'll fight through this myself, but it usually gets better the more you involve other people because now they're excited. They're helping you. They're helping the company. They're helping the project. They're all in this together. You've got someone to commiserate with and then that can also solve to, or help to, to dig you out of that own hole. Do you remember your, your people coming together, so to speak, to, to help you out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times, one in particular that I'm thinking about is there was a time, oh man, probably a year and a half ago or so with, with Forge, where we were launching a new kind of product feature, right? And it was one that was hyper, hyper local. So what I mean by that is now we've got this product feature called talent sharing that allows two businesses to be able to partner together to share talent. So it might be like a, a Pizza Hut that's next to a Starbucks and they say, hey, we're going to share talent so that anyone who works at the Pizza Hut can go work at the Starbucks and vice versa. Um, and the thing that that relied on was us getting a lot of location density, right? We've got to have a Pizza Hut that's right next to a Starbucks so that they can share labor. And at the time, the way that we were selling the product was phone sales. So we were literally like picking up the phone, calling folks, trying to get folks to use this new product service. And for whatever reason, it, it just wasn't taking. And I think there were a lot of reasons for that. One is it's a completely new product offering. No one knew that this thing existed 
people were skeptical of like how could this actually work what do you mean like someone who works at my pizza hut's gonna go work at starbucks how does that work um so there were just all these questions about it and i was starting to get kind of stressed out because we had just spent a lot of engineering time on building this new feature it was something that i believed in and still do it's now like our best selling feature but it was something that at the time i was like this has to exist in the world like this is brilliant um not just because of you know, it's this thing that we came up with, but because of all these business reasons that we could get into. But um, I was like, this has to exist in the world, but people just weren't taking to it. And so I, I started, I went to my sales folks and I was like, what do you think? Like, what should we do? And the recommendation that one of them had was, let's like literally plant ourselves in a new city and go door to door and get those businesses on the platform. At the time I was like, you're crazy. That's not scalable. How can we do this? Um, and then I was like, you know what, Stacy? Like, clearly the thing that you thought is not working. So let's try it. Um, so I literally, I packed up my bags with a few of our sales folks and we moved to Southern California and literally went door to door for three months. And I was out there with them trying to understand, like, is this thing gonna work? Um, and thank God it did. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I took a step back and said, I've gotta let my not that it was ego, but like let my thoughts leave at the door. There are other people that I've hired who are quite candidly more experienced than me in a lot of ways in their field. Let them come up with a strategy. Let's test it. And if it works, great. In this scenario, it did. Do you think you could have done that just as well in your first company? And another way of saying that is, what has improved about Stacy, the CEO, or the leader, or the creative, or the whomever, from joint from from my social cloud which was first you were 18 when you started to joint forge which is much more recent yeah um i think a lot of things have changed but i think one of them is being able to um being able to step away from the business and kind of get a clear head about things which is something that in my first business it was you know this thing relies on me i have to be there i have to be doing all this stuff you know, it relies on me and a few other folks, my other co-founders, to get this thing off the ground. Um, and I was kind of, we were building that company such that we were such integral parts to the business. Whereas today, the way that I think about running a business is very different. It's if I were to get, if I were to walk out on Market Street and get hit by a bus tomorrow, my success or my failure as a leader would be determined based off of will things be able to continue to live and survive? Will this business be able to continue to live and survive without me in the picture? And if the answer to that is no, then I feel that I failed as a leader because I'm not equipping my team with the right tools to do their job. And how would you grade yourself today on that metric? Oh man, I'm probably at a C. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think that's better than an F. I think for my <laughs> last business, I probably would have been like an F minus if there's such a thing. But um, I think you know we're, we're still a small team, so I still find it extremely hard to delegate, but this is something that I work on every week, and every time that there's an activity that I'm like, man, I don't have time to do this, but this needs to get done today or this week or whatever it is, the first thought that I've trained myself to have now is who can I delegate to? And even if it seems really, really hard because the natural inclination that you should, that most people I think have is, well, they can't do it because they're doing this, or this person can't do it because they're doing this. But again, stepping away from the business, saying, what if I literally wasn't here? Who would have to do this? Who can I delegate this to? 
And then what you find more often than not is like people love the responsibility, right? So if you go to them and you say, hey, can you do this? I need help with this thing. People want to take on more responsibility. They want to help. They're at a startup because they want to be that integral part of the business. And you just start to kind of invigorate your whole team because they're like, yeah, this is awesome. I want to be here. I want to be doing this. I want to be contributing, even if it's not in my job description. Um, if you've done a good job hiring, that should be the natural response. And I feel lucky to have built a team that, that has that. Yeah, and that's also a very popular method by a number of like world-renowned leaders to get people engaged. Ben Franklin used to borrow books from people. He used to walk around asking people to just borrow a book. And when people gave him this book, they now felt like they took ownership over him and over his success, and they felt like they were a part of it. And sometimes he wouldn't even read it. He would just let it sit on a shelf for a while, and a couple weeks later bring it back, thank him for the book. And now that everyone's been brought into his success or his project or his whatever, uh, they are now more, they're instilled as a part of it. And so they, they come to be, and uh, have you ever read uh, 48 Laws of Power? I actually haven't. Yeah, so weird book because it's all about like conniving murderers in history. <laughs> but it's still very interesting by a psychiatrist, psychologist, Robert Greene. And it's got similar themes of like you begin to, there's another one called Influence by uh, someone else I'll find soon. But it's all about, you know, if you want to get, if you want to find some success out of something, you get other people involved, you delegate, you bring them into it. They get excited, they feel in control, they feel like they can really help you and help them and it's a feeling of importance at a drive so that's kind of a time-tested strategy uh, of delegation towards success yeah that's awesome i didn't know that story about ben franklin too so that's yeah he was sneaky like that (laughs) ben franklin was sneaky like that uh so do you look in terms of hiring the people around because i think that's a really cool distinction you made that in the beginning you couldn't delegate for shit Yep. Uh, now you've gotten slightly better. Uh, we've been working on the C, turn it into a, a B minus, but every time will be a little better. Yeah. Do you hire with that in mind as well? Do you hire and like you sit across from someone and you think this person can take over if I need them to, or this person can handle any task and will handle any task I get them to, or do you hire on different criteria? Yeah, I mean that's a big thing that I think about a lot, especially if it's in like a lead management role. That's a number one thing that I think is like how willing and able is this person to just pick up the reins and be able to deal with the crap that comes at them and then move forward um, and take on things that are not in the job description and just get it done because they know that that's the success of the business. And how do you see that in a person? Um, it's really hard, honestly. I think a lot of it comes down to motivation again, which is something that is, you know, kind of fairly easy to screen for in a sense because there are some folks that you'll sit across in an interview and you can just tell like this person does not want the job or like you can tell that this person it's just a paycheck for them like there it's a I am getting in right at nine I'm leaving right at five done um and there are other people that you sit across from them and you just kind of see it in their eyes you're like this person's got it like this person is their switch is on and they're ready to go. Um, so it's kind of hard to explain, but I think it's, I don't know, it's just something that like you start interviewing enough people, talking to enough people that you can see it. Yeah, and it's, it, hopefully even that gets easier and, and uh, you become more able to distinguish those things over time as well. 
Yeah, and then some of it's also anecdotal, right? So like asking folks, hey, tell me about a time in your career or in school or whatever it is in the past where there's something that you've been tasked to do that you did not know how to do. How did you go about doing that? I was going to ask, and maybe that was the answer to the question I was about to ask, but do you have any favorite questions that you like to ask people you're interviewing? Yeah, that's a big question that I ask. Um, well, say that again. What was a time in your career in schooling where you did something you were not asked to do? Yeah, like a task that you did not know how to do. And like, what was it? How did you go about doing it? Walk me through the process. Um, and that when you're screening for a lot of things, right? You're screening for, okay, first of all, you're screening that this person can actually come up with a task, right? Because if they can't come up with a task, that probably means that other people in their career, their schooling or education or whatever it is, didn't, didn't see something to give them that task, which I think is also a signal. So can they come up with that task? Can they reflect on a time that they've gotten given one? And then what, what was the task? Um, you know, how did they how did they go about executing on it, even if they knew nothing about it? Because so much of life is getting thrown something that like you just have no idea. You're like, what am I supposed to do with this? You gotta dribble it, yeah, <laughs> or shoot it, or it, something. Yeah. Exactly, right? It's like hot potato. You've got to like, figure out what to do with it right now. Um, Are you good at doing that? Uh, figuring out what to do. Figuring out what to do. A task. Um, I think I am. I think that this has been like my entire career. Right, which is uh, not necessarily that I've been given a task. I think I, I tend to lean more towards like creating my own tasks and then acting on them, and then you start to get tasks because you start to bring other people in the fold, and then when you have a lot of people, like when you take on investment, all of a sudden, like this task that you set up for yourself has different expectations on it, so then the task becomes you know, hey, we're giving you money, grow revenue for us, and and get our return. Um, so then you start to get other tasks added on. What are you not good at? What are you working on? Or you um, don't have to be working on it, but what are, you, what are you not good at? A lot of things, right? Like, I think I delegation is one that I, I think I'm getting better at, but I work on every day. It's a, it's a constant thing. Which is the funniest thing, because delegation is like making other people do your shit. I know. <laughs> it should be the easiest thing. It should thing. be the yeah. easiest thing. <laughs> But I think that the problem for me is I've always been the personality type, and I knew this even when I was like in school, right? So I probably could have predicted it, but whenever there was a group project, I always was like, I'll do it. Like, <laughs> just I'll raise my hand. I was always trying to be in your group. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I was like, I'll do it. I know that I can get this done. I know that it can be the quality that I want. Um, if no one else kind of bothers me, I can, I can do it. Just let me take it. Um, and I don't know why that's just like I was born that way I guess but well that strategy works when you're writing a six page paper or making right. a trifold board about the, the triangle shirtwaist factory fire or something it doesn't, doesn't work. work when you're growing a team when you're growing a team yeah which is why I think it's something that I think about a lot which is the, the thing that it takes you when you're building a company the skill set that it takes you going from zero to ten million dollars in revenue is like you can be very hands-on and you can get there because a lot of it is just brute force like are you willing to sit down and do the grunt work and be out literally like knocking on doors with your team right but then when you go from like 10 million to 100 million plus um then the game is completely different right it's like how well can you hire manage and motivate people and those are completely two different 
skill sets. And for some companies, it might even skew less. It might be like the first million is just brute force grunt work. And then after the first million, it's like, no, how effective are you at delegating and being able to grow and scale that team? And I think I've still got a lot of work to do. Um, I'm working towards it every day, but I think that also just comes from being a young manager. But yeah. I've got a lot of work to do still there. So uh, let's go, let's go there. Then I was going to wait for that. But how do you how do you manage up? How do you manage up? How do you how are you a tw- eighteen year old with I imagine people considerably older than you working on building my social cloud? How are you a twenty five year old working on Join Forge? You've got uh, almost a dozen people full time, and then you work with all these clients. How do you? walk into a room and say, take me seriously, I'm fucking badass, like, this is who I am. How do you, how did you learn to do that? Was it difficult at times? Yeah, um, I think it comes down to, I mean, the first thing for me is like finding the right team. And what that means a lot of times is when you've got a young manager like myself, it's, are people willing to check their egos at the door, myself included, right? In the sense that I want to know that I walk into a room with folks that I work with who don't look at the age, they don't look at the fact that I'm a female, they don't look at any of that. They just look at, we're here because we've got a shared mission that we want to bring into the world, and we're all hellbent on making that a reality. Um, so that's like the first thing is you got to get the team composition right, you got to find the right people who will check all those things at the door and not care about them. Second is, again, I think for me, I've done better this time around than the last company. Um, but being able to just give people the agency to do what you hired them to do. And that's something that here at this company, it's the way that I feel like I've been most effective at managing is literally saying, what do you think is the right thing? And then allowing my team to come up with those answers and test those things and get into this, hey, it's not necessarily my way or the highway or your way or the highway. It's Treat everything as an experiment. Let's take your thought. Let's A, B, test that against this other thought that I have or that someone else in the company has or whatever it is, and let's just experiment with everything and check the ego at the door about whose idea it was or whose thought it was or whatever it is. We just want good ideas to win, and we want the right thing for the business. What was it like working with your brother? Yeah. Um, it was actually great. Did y'all check egos at the door and do what's best for the business? Honestly, like my brother and I, especially in my social club, had a great working dynamic. And I think that just comes down to the fact that like, um, I don't know, like you grow up going through life learning how to argue with each other because you're a family and you live together and you just kind of have to figure it out. Um, which is one of the things that I've always you know, loved about that relationship. And I think there are a lot of things that make it really hard to, to work with family. Um, but at the end of the day, like family's family and you got to make it to the family reunion and everyone's got to be happy. So I think that it's challenging times, but I think that, uh, you can definitely have a a good working relationship there. When you guys started my social cloud, how, how serious were you at the very beginning? What I mean is, I don't. I, I know that's probably not the best way of phrasing it, but if I sit down with one of my friends or coworkers and I say, hey, I have this business idea, this is what we're gonna work on, let's get to work, you do this task, you do this task, everybody go, I've done that and it works great, usually. Yeah. 
if my little sister and I wanted to start a company together, we'd sit down and then we'd probably start doodling on a whiteboard and then she'd get hungry and that'd be the end of the day. Like, yeah. When you and your brother started talking about this, yeah. how much of it was like two siblings fooling around and playing and having a good time? And how much of it, like, what was the beginning era like? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think my brother and I were always pretty serious about it. We had kind of started it as a side project. It was like, oh, this is something cool that we're going to do for the summer and see where it goes. But we were pretty serious about it, all things considered, as as a side project. So much so that um, like, we started it the summer after I graduated from high school. And I moved from Arizona to California, which was where my brother was living at the time, to go start this thing. My friends were like, you're crazy, like you're gonna miss out on all the like pre-college parties that everyone has before everyone leaves to go to go off to wherever they're going. Having been to those parties, you really did miss out. Great parties. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but at the time I was just like, no, like this is the thing that I'm doing and Scott, my brother, you know, we're doing this together and so this is the thing and we just bunker down for the entire summer working on the business. Um, so I think, like, all things considered, we were pretty serious about it. That being said, there was a massive learning curve for us because I was 18 and he was 20, like, trying to get this business off the ground, knowing literally nothing about how to start or build or grow a business. So it was trying to build a product while finding product market fit, while trying to figure out what our go-to-market strategy was, and not having any of the verbiage or the language to talk about those things. So it was kind of like... Now I can kind of distill it down into like, this is the playbook of how you build a business, but at the time it was just all these thoughts kind of swirling around. So it made it significantly harder. Who were your first customers in that? They were all consumers. So we started off with my social cloud as a consumer product. Um, and we kind of gave the software away for free to consumers to build a base, to build product market fit. And then we started selling B2B. So into larger enterprises. And then that was about the time that we got acquired because we realized very quickly that um, if you're storing things as sensitive as usernames and passwords and bank information for large corporates, um, there's a lot of security requirements you gotta be a big dog. that come yeah. along with that. And a company that has raised you know, $1.2 million in capital, while it seems like a lot, is not a lot of money at all to build a business like that. Was that by plan? How much of that was by plan? Or how much, how much of it was like, we're going to build a consumer base, we're going to give it away for free, next we'll go to the enterprise level, we'll start selling, this will be our first market, this is what we'll do, and we'll get acquired because we'll have all this data and, and information systems, and that'll be great. And then how much of it was stumbling? A lot of it was stumbling, to be honest. Like, when we first started the business, a lot of it was, and I think part of that stems back from, like, when we started the business, we didn't even think of it necessarily as a business, right? Be, like pre-investment to us, it was, this is a project that we're working on for three months in the summer to see where it goes. And then what, you hired engineers, or, you're not an engineer yourself, right? Yeah, so my brother and I started off coding. Oh, so we okay. built the first version of the product. We brought on a third co-founder to my social cloud, his name's Shiv Prakash. So it was the three of us, and it was the three of us for the first six months. Like, literally just building the product ourselves, giving it out to family and friends, like, doing some social media marketing, um, posting it around on the internet, and just trying to gain viewership that way. There was not really rhyme or reason or anything, because it was just like a, hey, this is a cool thing that we built, and if someone uses it, awesome. 
right? And then once we raised capital, it was like, no, this is a business. There needs to be a strategy around how we're actually building this thing. And luckily at that point, we had kind of learned enough to say, this is roughly what the strategy is going to be. Um, and then how you go about executing that, of course, is you can talk about strategy to the moon and back, but you've got to learn how to, how to actually execute. How to do this stuff. I do love talking about strategy. Yeah. Nothing more invigorating than a good meeting. It's true. Yeah, some whiteboarding, <laughs> some post-it notes. You can really get a lot done in an hour. You can. Yeah. <laughs> got to get the right people in the room. <laughs> and, well, one of the people you had in the room was Sir Richard Branson. Yep. Right? Uh, fun story of how you met him. You, you found something online that said, come down to Florida and meet her for drinks. And then you called him and said, I'm a tiny human who's 18, but I'd love to meet her for drinks. And then you came and invested. Is that the generally how it happened? Pretty much the gist of it, yeah. What do you think it was about either you or the company or the potential? Because you can invest in anything. Yeah. Like you were doing cool stuff and you're an amazing person, but he could, he has access to everything and everyone. Yeah. What, what was it about you or what you were doing that you think spoke to him? I think there were probably two things, and I, I don't want to necessarily put words in his mouth, but I think one thing that he did mention when my brother and I, we flew from California to Miami, we had borrowed $4,000 to donate to go to the event that he was at to get access to be in that room. Um, so I think one of the things was he was like, hey, like that's kind of a risk. I, I see a little bit of myself in you guys. Yeah, he was a ballsy kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then I think the other thing that always helps when you're starting a business is market size. And the thing that is great about the, the My Social Cloud product and just products like it now that are on the market is that everyone has the issue of remembering usernames and passwords. It's just like a fact, right? Everyone's got a million of them. So I think from a potential standpoint as well, when you think about the business and market size, it's massive market and it's only growing as more people get online so I think probably those two things combined were enough for him to say hey let me take a deeper look at this and see if there's something here and how deep of a look did he take and how deep did he stay how how much access did you have to him over the two-ish years that you were working on this yeah definitely um so he He's always kind of been a supporter through and through. He's obviously not been, he's an investor, so has not been operational, was not super operational in building the business. Um, what he did was he introduced us to two other folks, Jerry Murdoch, who was a co-founder of Insight Venture Partners, which is a VC firm, um, and then Alex Welch, who was the founder and CEO of Photobucket, um, which sold to News Corp back in the day. And the two of them, uh, after we had met Branson, actually got on a plane and came out to meet us in, um, in LA at the time when we were running the business. And they were the ones who actually kind of went through the diligence with us, asked us a bunch of the questions um, about how we were gonna grow the business and how we were gonna scale and who did we need to hire and all those sorts of things. Um, and then they, were, they ended up investing alongside Branson in the business. And then the two of them actually stayed fairly active and Branson was always a hey, if you need something, I'm an email away. And even to this day, um, he still remains that. And he's one dude that I'm just like, he responds to emails very quickly. And I'm like, you're way better than I am. And you've got like a million more things going on. And he's so. usually like on a surfboard somewhere. Yeah. I so the fact that he's responding to emails somewhere on uh, Necker Island, very impressed. Yeah. That's very so, cool. No, it's good. How, how do these people... 
who did you find to be the best mentors to you over this time? You mentioned earlier that part of what you attribute uh, some of the stuff you accomplished through the fact that you had amazing people in your life and your parents were supportive and, and you and your brother worked together on this and then you had uh, Branson and Alex um, and what was it? Third? Jerry. And yeah. Jerry, yeah, there you go. And then you've hired older people than you before. So who are, how, how do you think about the mentors that you've had and their importance and what you've done? Yeah. So for me, like the best mentors are people who are one step ahead of where I am, one or two steps ahead of where I am. Like they're in a place where they remember what it was like to be where I am today. So they're not so far removed that they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't remember what it was to be a 12 person team and, you know, going from, you know, one client that takes up 80% of your revenue. Right. Um, so I always look for mentors that are like one or two steps ahead of me because I feel like they can give the best advice because they were literally just where I was. Um, so, I mean, a lot of a lot of folks that I can name, one of them who has been really instrumental to me when it comes to sales is this guy named Forrest Hobbs, who is just like he um, he grew sit. He grew revenue at a company called Telesign from like zero to 100 million over the course of four years, obviously with the help of the team, but kind of leading that charge. Uh, and then he, he, before that, he like sold a company to Microsoft and worked at Microsoft. Um, and now he's on to the next company that he's working with. And what with has he taught you about sales? So many things, like even down to like negotiating back and forth with sales folks and helping me review contracts of offer letters that I'm going to send out to people and like does this does this quota make sense given where we are today and how should I think about splitting up base versus uh, variable comp and what should I think about how should I think about giving equity to sales how do I think about sales go to market strategy and how do I think about building a sales organ splitting up territory for sales um, and you applied a lot of this at Forge yeah, applied a bunch of it at Forge. Like he was my go-to before I even made the first sales hire. He actually got on the phone with, with the guy and helped me go through interviews. So like someone like that who is, um, just like wants to see you win and isn't getting anything for it in return. Like honestly, dude's a saint for even taking the time to do it. Everyone's so busy, but um, you know someone who will kind of who's like I remember what it was like to be there you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was, or three years ago at this company that I helped get off the ground, that's invaluable because those people understand it and they can give you advice, not just as someone giving advice because everyone has advice, but like as someone who's done it and done it successfully. That's a really great way of thinking about it, looking for somebody one to two steps ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, because if you find some very accomplished 55-year-old who's sold a bunch of businesses or gone on tour or whatever your profession is, that person has no idea what you're talking about anymore. Yeah. It's just so, not that they're mean or full of ego, it's just hasn't been on their mind for decades. Right. Uh, but finding somebody just slightly ahead of you is important. Um, so in the last few minutes we have left, I want to ask about uh, the future of work. Yeah. So tell us quickly about what Forge is. Um, and, and what you're working on, and then uh, I want to hear how that relates to how uh, what it means to be a worker is, is changing over time. Yep. 
So basically at Forge, what we're doing is we're building a network of hourly employees that can go work traditional jobs, so stable jobs, but on their own time. So what that means is we work with brands like um, like Hilton and Marriott and Travel Lodge and Choice Hotels and like a bunch of these brands where their managers come into Forge and list the hours that they need folks to work. They have a pool of employees in Forge that are all trained, ready to go, can work at the location, and those employees can go and pick whatever shifts they want to work and go work and get paid. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell what we do at Forge. Um, for us, future of work, I think a few things. First, I think it's all about um, empowering employees. So I think the old way of doing business is saying, hey, you're my employee, you must work from this time to that time because you're my employee, do it, right? The new way of doing work is saying, hey, you have this really valuable skill set that I'm in need of and here are some times that you can work and if these work for you, I want you to come and work and be a part of my team and my organization and empowering people to make the choices themselves on when to work, where to work, how they work, um, giving people the agency and autonomy to choose life on their own terms. And this trend is really only a couple of decades old, if, if that. What do you think has led to this rejuvenation, re-empowerment of employees? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things, right? I think one is technology has really sped up, um, sped up capacity and productivity in the way that we do things today where um, it's a lot easier today to get anything on demand than it was previously. And I think that includes, um, that includes people in some sense, right? Where, hey, you know, why, why do I have to get a schedule of when to work two weeks in advance? Why can't I just wake up in the morning and say, hey, I actually just don't feel like it today. And tomorrow I might feel like it and I'm gonna go pick up five shifts that I wanna work tomorrow, right? But I think that technology enables this kind of immediate gratification isn't necessarily even the right word, but we Decision can, making. Yeah, yeah. We can do things on our own time that previously it was, no, this has to be planned out in advance. And how does that balance with what you lose by not being a full-time worker? That if I'm working part-time for Marriott and part-time for, for Hilton, uh, I do, might not get benefits like Lyft drivers and Uber drivers. They have all this freedom that's amazing, but then they got to do their own taxes and then they don't have health benefits and then all these other issues come into play. How did the workers you guys enable uh, to do this awesome thing, which is take a week off and go on vacation, come back and work three days and then work somewhere else for three days? How did they feel about uh, what they've gained versus what they've lost? Yeah. So our model is perhaps a little bit unique because in our model, the employees are still W-2 employees. So they're actually still qualifying for health care, health benefits. Um, in a lot of cases, they're still qualifying for maternity, paternity leave with, with the employer. Um, the folks that are on our platform are W-2 hourly employees of the companies that use our software. So what that means is if I am picking up my shifts through Forge for a Hilton property that I work at, I'm still technically a Hilton employee, um, so if I'm working over 32 hours in a week, I still, again, I qualify for health benefits, all that sort of stuff. So we've kind of taken, in some respects, the anti-gig economy approach um, in that we believe in the flexibility, but still believe that people should 
qualify for things like health health benefits and um, you know living wage and all that sort of stuff. So the approach that we take is businesses still offer that today. There might be a point in the future where we offer things like health benefits within our own network, um, but for the time being, you still get those through your employer. And how do you think about? Uh, that's, that's great. I, I didn't realize that, so that's definitely a huge positive yeah. um, to force. And how do you think about automation and how that will affect things? And I ask that um, in two respects. One is that for as long as history has been history, or at least since the 1800s, it's all robots are taking our jobs, and steam engines are taking our jobs, and cars are taking our jobs, and ATMs are taking our jobs, and it's always been okay. Right? Every, like, everyone's still got a job who wants a job. But personally, I don't think that that's going to continue the same way, because if we have all these claims about all these incredible things that technology is going to be doing at a faster rate than ever before, breaking every possible law of the imagination, it will eliminate more things that can be created because now to participate in the economy, you need to have more training. Yep. That's my thesis, and you can argue against that. The second reason I, I ask is because I work in the self-driving car industry. That's a very popular topic of self-driving cars are taking away everyone's job, and many of the jobs are pizza delivery people and, and other food delivery drivers and then uh, you know Teamsters Union UPS workers and also all the Lyfts and Ubers contract workers. Yep. Other versions of autonomy might be taken away, concierge desks at hotels or, or whatever other claims people are making. Yep. How do you think about what the people who rely on Forge or rely on these jobs, what should they think about automation? Yeah. And I was going to say, I think there, there will be a shift, right, definitely, in the sense that you're right. When the ATM came out, right, you didn't necessarily need as many bank tellers. You still need some. Like, there's still bank tellers when I'm walking to Chase. Like, I'm still, that function is still there in some capacity, less than it used to be, but still there. Um, but I think that you're right in that there will be different skill sets that are needed for the next era of jobs. And there will be, there is a big skills and training gap that will need to be filled. Um, that being said, I think that historically these shifts take, they take time, quite candidly. So while there's a lot of talk about, yes, AI and robots are going to take our jobs, it's all over, I think we should also temper our expectations to say, hey, these shifts historically have taken 40 to 50 years. They've taken a generation, right, before this new thing happens, and to your point, there are still jobs, it's just, it's just different. And my personal belief is like long term, way past my lifetime, we probably move more into like a leisure economy where people don't necessarily have to work, but you can work, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, on things that you're passionate about, right? So maybe art is my work, or maybe music is my work. But it's something that I'm just inherently passionate about, and I can I can get by because we live in a society where it's a universal basic by. income thing. Potentially, <laughs> right? I think there are a lot of ways that this could could play out. Um, but I think that we start to see people getting more creative, and I think we already see that in some respects today. Like you can be very creative even as a computer, um, as an engineer, right? Um, so I think that yeah. I don't know exactly, but it's moving more towards a leisure economy in some respect, but at the same time, knowing that it takes a long time to get there, 
And in those time periods, um, there's always work that has to be done. And to your point, like in the United States right now, lowest unemployment rate we've had at least in the past decade, right? In Hawaii, it's like 1.8% right now. Historical low, even though everyone's talking about robots are taking our jobs. In reality, it's, it's actually not happening. So yeah, I knew I wanted to move to Hawaii, but I always thought it was for other reasons. <laughs> well, awesome. Stacy. this has been so fun. Um, I had so many other questions, but uh, again, we'll have to save that for, for season two. Um, one final question, and we kind of touched on this a little bit already, so it's a little repetitive, but I did make it my New Year's resolution to ask every guest the same question. Okay. Uh, so 2018, my personal goal is more gratitude uh, mm-hmm. towards people who have done things for me. So if you had your podium, which you do, this is your podium, welcome, <laughs> uh, and you could give a big thank you to two or three mentors or teachers that you've had or have now, uh, who would it be and, and, and what would it be for? Yeah, oh man, a lot of things. I think first is I've got to do a shout out to everyone on my team because while that's more than two or three people, they have been... Um, it's one entity. One entity. Not only have they been mentors, they've also been friends in this journey of you know, birthing something to life that uh, otherwise would have not existed. So big thank you to them. Big thank you to Forrest Hobbs, as I mentioned. Um, big thank you to Michael Costigan, who is another mentor and best friend who is, I talk his ear off about Forge all the time, and he's probably annoyed with me, but big thank you to him. Um, and then just in general, like big thank you to all of our investors who continue to support us, um, not only with their words of wisdom, but with capital, which is in a lot of ways harder to part with. So big thanks to all those folks. Awesome. Well, Stacy, uh, where can people find out more about you, about Forge, and about? I wish we had talked about this, but the book of two billion under twenty. Where can people find all these amazing things? Yeah, definitely. So people can find out more about Forge on joinforge.com, which is our website, um, and then I am fairly accessible on social media. So people can feel free to add me on LinkedIn, Facebook, follow me on Twitter, tweet at me, um, follow me on Instagram, any stuff like that. I'm generally what's your uh, what's your handle at stacy ferreira Should on be. all of those <laughs> <laughs> awesome and the book is at uh is, is stacyferreira.com or uh stacyferreira.com you can also find the book two billion under 20 on amazon as well amazing well stacy thank you very much thanks and there you have it stacy ferreira Ambition comes from insatiable curiosity. Delegation is the hardest task. And most importantly, there is so much to do and so many problems to solve that someone like Stacy, or like you, my dear listeners, will never run out. If you want to see more about Stacy, you can check her out on Twitter at Stacy Ferreira, F-E-R-R-E-I-R-A. Uh, check out her company at joinforge.com or buy the book, Two Billion Under 20, How Millennials Are Breaking Down Age Barriers and Changing the World. Check it out on Amazon, at the website, and wherever you get your books and other such things. If you liked what you heard, check out the blog at adrielcc.blogspot.com and join the Curious City newsletter, where I send out a few fun articles, a cool startup to watch, and a proprietary rant by me, full of philosophy, humor, and unsubstantiated opinions about technology and the future. 
The read won't take you more than 60 seconds, and it's a fun way to spend a minute, I think. Thanks for listening. See you next time.